Annette Densham. Welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thanks, Mark. You've got 14 awards that you're doing submissions for at the moment. What are they all about? What keeps you busy? Oh, gosh. My eldest son said to me the other day, he said, Mum, when people complain about they're busy, they haven't met you. And it was like, that's either a good thing or a bad thing. So at the moment, I'm working on Osmopreneur Awards, um, Urban Design Awards, um, Raw Awards, Stevie Awards, so um, Telstra Business Awards. So it's quite an eclectic mix of industries and business types and, and business people that I work for. So that keeps me really busy from about, you know, May through to October. And in between that, I'm working on writing articles and stories and building people's profiles. So it's kind of like I'm an octopus. <laughs> can't see the other six arms, but they're there. You say you're very busy. Do you think you're busy? Yeah, I am. Um, and it's not just, you know, that badge of honour that people wear. And they go, I'm so busy, so busy. I literally sometimes am sitting here going, I have to finish this, but I really have to go to the toilet. I can't go yet because if I so yeah, but I'm not I'm not that busy where I'm stressed and frazzled. I'm I'm used to working at a frenetic pace because of my background. You know, working in journalism. You know, you've got a story, you've got to get the deadline. I'm working in corporate comms where things can change at a moment's notice. So I actually thrive in busyness because I don't know my brain works really quickly and I'm, I am able to do multiple things at once even though they say that, that that you can't multitask I think I'm very good at it you talk about deadlines how good are you with deadlines from your journalism days oh I'm shit at deadlines <laughs> <laughs> like because I like the th I work better under pressure so much to my clients' absolute horror is that I'm often working right up to the last minute, giving them enough time to be able to, you know, do what they have to do. But uh, I just, yeah, I think I work better the closer to the deadline. I always aim to meet them, particularly awards deadlines. You really don't have a lot of room to move with those because they're set, but... Um, I still try and push them. You know, I'm a, I'm a big one for if you don't ask, you don't get. So, you know, if I know that like two two days ago, no, beginning of the week, I keep losing track of the days, see? Um, Monday, I sent a client a draft and said, this is due Friday, 5 p.m. I didn't hear from her until yesterday. And then she wasn't happy with what was written. And so I went back and did a few tweaks and it was like, we're not going to make Friday. So I just messaged the awards people and went, look, this is what's happened. Can I have till Sunday? And she went, yeah, sure. So you've got to ask. What's the biggest thing that you've asked for in your life? Biggest thing I've asked for? Oh, that's a good one. I like that question. Oh, look, I mean, this might sound a little corny, but... I think the biggest thing I've asked for is is permission from myself to share my story 
because it's one of the hardest things to do in the world is to share your own story. We're all really, really good at telling other people's. So last year I wrote a book which was all about my story. And that was, I procrastinated on that for years until I went, you know what? It's okay, Nick, you can do it. So I think from a philosophical point of view, that would be um, that would be it. And I think one of the, the other biggest things that I've asked for was my last corporate job. I, for the first time in my life, I, I actually put a formal complaint in about the behaviour of a senior manager. You know, I, I grew up in a house where, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. You know, I'm a kid of the 70s and 80s. So, you know, the, the way women were treated then is very different to now. Still got a long way to go, but it's certainly very different. So I'd always just put up with bad behaviour because I just kind of thought that was the way it went. You know, it was, it's just something you had to suck up. So putting in that complaint, I think was probably the biggest thing that I've ever done. Oh, no, I've just thought of something else. Am I allowed three things? Absolutely. So when, so I've always been a, a very forthright person. So I say what I think. Um, granted with years, I've become a lot more tactful and diplomatic, um, which is probably good for everybody. But when I worked for, you know, one of the biggest newspaper publishers in Australia, um, they just they just treated their junior staff like crap. It was just a horrible place to work. It was misogynistic. It was sexist. It was nepotistic. And, you know, from a kid from Brisbane who really kind of fought for everything she'd ever got, it was like a real eye-opener. And because I am forthright and outspoken, I often shot myself in the foot but just the general way that they treated people. So I made a really big decision to sue this particular organisation wow. and take them to court. It was massive. It was like I was like 24 years old and had no support. Everybody, when they found out, pretty much just dumped me because, you know, you just had to suck things up. This is the way it is, Annette. We've been doing this for decades you should stop complaining about it and just get on with the work. And I'm like, no. So it's not so much asking permission, but I guess, well, yeah, I guess it was asking permission, saying to the community, is this behaviour okay? Is this acceptable way to be treating people, to be paying people? And sadly the court went, well, yeah, actually that's okay. Um, because we don't want to upset one of the richest men in the world. But I actually always really feel proud of that because it was a huge thing to do. And it cost me a lot of friends. It cost me my career, but I, I, I told my truth and I sh it was on public record that this was the way that people were being treated. So yeah, there you go, greedy. I'm gonna go for three. Could you say that it gave you your career though? Well, it certainly changed the way that I looked at myself and and that life was not about surety and certainty, that even though you can, you know, have a dream, have a goal, you know, do everything that you need to do to reach that goal, that 
it's not always going to work out. So I guess it, it made me tougher. I was already pretty tough, but I think it made me um, a little more street smart. Um, I learned a lot about myself and how I was showing up and interacting with people. Like I said, I'm you know a lot older now and a lot more diplomatic and tactful than I used to be. Like back then, some of the things that had come out of my mouth, I'm like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe I said that. Like, did I say that out loud? So I guess, yeah, it did really shape my career because when I left the newspaper, I was heartbroken. Like I was devastated. I actually spiraled into depression and there's like this whole six months of my life where I was just in such a dark, horrible, scary place that, you know, I'm amazed that I got out of it. You know, I, I didn't eat. I was abusing alcohol and drugs. And if I left the house, I would just vomit from the anxiety of it. And at one stage, I've always been a very robust person, you know, broad shoulders, you know, swimmer, athlete. But, I, you know, I shriveled down to like a size 10 and, you know, everything was sticking out because I was just so emaciated. Uh, and But when I pulled myself out, I went, you know what, the only person I can really count on to get to where I need to go is me. So whatever I do, I need to just be thinking about how does this serve me first and foremost. And it, I guess it really changed my loyalty and commitment to uh, an employer because that made me realise that I'm really nothing to them except for a means to an end. So I'll go and do my job, do what I have to do and learn what I can, you know, do the best job possible, but um, always be looking for something that I can do for me. And I guess it, it took me another, you know, 15, 20 years to get to that point. But when I lost my last job in 2013, um, which was a redundancy, uh, it was, here you go, Annette, it's time for you to take all those skills, all of those things that you've learnt and go and do it on your terms, which is what I did. How are you now that you're in charge? Are you a better boss because what you've been through? Uh, well, the one person who works for me says I'm the best boss she's ever had. <laughs> and I'm like, really me because I'm an organized I forget to <laughs> I forget to message it back um, you know we have regular meetings often which I push because I'm, I'm busy but she says I'm compassionate I'm empathetic um, I I push her out of her comfort zone I give her opportunities to grow and learn her skills um, you know, and I encourage her and I, I pat her on the back um, a lot because I'm really appreciative of, of her giving her time to me and for doing such an amazing job because you, you cannot be delivering the volume of work that we do by yourself. You need a team. So, yeah, I, I guess it does. I, I certainly try not to be a micromanager because... That's what I've experienced my whole life. How can you fly and soar if someone's constantly putting a fire blanket on you and going, oh, you know, you didn't do this or you didn't do that? And it's like, yeah, I know, let me get to it and I will. We've got to give people opportunities to, to fix their mistakes 
and to be able to grow through that. I, I guess I never experienced that through my working life. So I, I guess that's what I do for D is I go, you know, okay, here's the job, here's the briefing, here's what I want you to do. And it comes back and, I, and I'll say to her, okay, here's what's great. Here's what we can fix up. Off you go and fix it up. And I, I never correct her work. I always let her come back to me with something. So yeah, I guess she's three years and she's still working with me. So I must be doing something right. Back in the days when you were working for people and working in newspapers, the glass ceiling, how did you decide to crash through that? Oh gosh, with a big bulldozer <laughs> and lots of noise. Um, I just, I've never been one to sit back and accept this is the way we've always done it. That always really, that always seemed like a cop out. Even as a kid, it was like, well, but like if it's not working or it's not fair or it's not right, why would we keep doing that? So. I just, I, I ask questions. Um, I'm not easily intimidated. Um, you know, like I've worked with some really powerful men, you know, really men who have who've helped make or break prime ministers, you know, with the words that they write in a newspaper. And I just push back. And even though I knew that they, they hated me for it and that, and they really, were part of not being helpful in me moving through my career um, because, you know, it's hard to move up through the ranks when the people at the top think that you're a pain in the butt. <laughs> but I guess it meant that I could walk away and feel proud that I had not, uh, I, I'd not stepped away from my principles and my values. Um, because I think if you're going to break through anything, as long as you break through with those intact, that you've not had to compromise yourself, you know, like it, it, it would have been really good to do exactly what they said and to shut up and to put my head down and, you know, kiss some ass and, you know, brown nose. and But, you know, I've watched people do that and I went, how do you then go and, and live with yourself in those quiet moments? when you know that you're just a big sack. I just never wanted to do that. I always thought that if I became that person, then Annette would be gone forever. And I would just be some, you know, suit wearing, you know, pointy headed person who couldn't think for themselves anymore. So I guess I'm still that way. Did ego outstrip ability or what do you think caused the problems for you? Yeah, it would definitely be ego. The ability was there, but um, ego of feeling that I was justified and right, that I was coming from a place of of authority and um, self-righteousness, even though I look back and I think I had a really good point. I just went about it the wrong way. Um, while I didn't have to brown nose, you know, the 50-year-old Annette looks back at the 23-year-old <laughs> Annette and says, you know what, you catch more flies with honey. There was a way that you could have had what you wanted without compromising your values and succumbing to the game but still play the game. So, yeah, ego definitely got in the way. Because, like, you remember being in your 20s? We're... we're uh, 
you know, we're unbeatable. We're bulletproof. <laughs> you know, we definitely think that we know everything. I've got a 20-year-old now that sometimes I look at him and think, was I really that cocky and that arrogant when I was 20? Like, did I really look down on adults, you know, older adults and think that you're an idiot because of the wisdom that you're now partake you know sharing with me and I had lots of really learned and mature people that I worked with who would say Annette you know settle it down and it's like what do they know (laughs) what do they know now I look back and I go they knew a lot um so yeah ego was definitely a big barrier there when you look back at the media now what do you think of the media the way it's evolved Lately. Oh, where's a box of tissues? <laughs> oh, I like I I lament the loss of quality journalism. I know and there's a lot of old school journalists who are setting up their own media outlets and there's some really great ones that do good quality journalism. But you know, if you look at a lot of the mainstream, it's just dreadful. You know, this morning, one of the first thing I do every morning is read the news just to see what's out there or what stories my clients could be tapping into. And this morning, I think I read just on news.com.au five stories, talk, which was just really a regurgitation of someone's TikTok video. Like, That's not news. <laughs> or, you know... You know, back in the day, you know, used to have the op-ed, the, you know, the editorial opinion piece, which, you know, was the letters to the editor and, and the editorial piece, you know, a few pages into the paper. Now there's so many journalists who are just writing these fluffy pieces about their opinions. And it's like, how is that news? Like news is something new. But it's also about both sides of the story. And I really see a lot of the time we only get one side of the story. And it really, and I think, you know, this environment that we live in now really demonstrates how powerful that is in taking everyday people who are just working hard and doing their best. And it it pollutes their minds and they think that it's gospel and they think that it's true. You know, we saw it on a current affair, so it must be true. And it's not, it's just dribble. It, it doesn't, you know, really have a lot to do with um, educating and empowering people so that they're kept up to date with what's going on. So, you know, I'm really sad to, you know, see the media it is. And, but, and even, you know, like I can send out multiple media releases a week um, to hundreds of journalists and you know, back when I was a journalist, I would contact everybody through a letter, back then letter, or pick up the phone, call, you know, smoke signals, um, carrier pigeons, but would would just contact people and say, thanks very much for sending the stuff through. It's not the right time for this story or whatever, and let them know. Now you've got no idea if they've, if they've got it, if it went into spam, if they're on holidays, because nobody gets back to you. Like even, like last week, I responded to four stories. We wrote four stories for different publications and sent them off by the deadline with everything they needed. 
no link, emailed them, hey, have you used the story? Can you let me know? No answer. You know, and you can email people four or five times before you even get a response. So I think that we're also seeing this gradual decline in, you know, you're there when I need you, but if I don't need you, I'm just going to pretend that you're not a human being who's worthy of communicating with. So almost that basic courtesy is gone as well because journalists have got so many opportunities for talent and contacts and stories. It's it's a little bit like, you know, a kid in a candy store. You know, you just can shove it in your mouth and you don't really have to say thank you, please, or um, acknowledge what people are doing to help you put out this information into the world. What do you put down the bias and change and decline in journalism standards over time? What do you put it down to? Uh, I think our desire for news all the time, you've got to fill it with something. So, you know, you've got these online, you know, when we moved into the digital space, there's really no time now to be methodical and careful. Uh, you know, like a couple of years ago, I did a story for you know, just a local story. It was about um, this incredible woman who was putting on this high tea for mums on Mother's Day to raise some money for a, a charitable organisation, sent it to the local paper. They wrote a story. I read it and went, they got the date wrong. <laughs> like Mother's Day is the same bloody day every year. And she got the date wrong. And I messaged her and said, you got the date wrong. Like that was a really important part of the story. And she went, oh, I didn't have time to check it. And I went, it's Mother's Day. Like it's it's not hard to Google when's Mother's Day. It's not hard to go, hey, Google, when's Mother's Day? But she didn't do that. Google just answered me. <laughs> Thanks, Google. <laughs> so I think that, that this change in in what's being put out there is driven by that that frenzied 24-7 news cycle. You know, a lot of online newspapers in particular are updating their content every 30 minutes, you know, and because newsrooms have been stripped bare, you know, with the redundancies with, like, the two major media outlets in Australia, Fairfax and News Limited, their newsrooms have been decimated by redundancies. Um, you know, people are advertising less, so you don't have as much money to pay for, um, you know, quality stories or, or for the time for these people to write these quality stories. And I imagine that the journalists who are now working for them probably feel a little cheap because, you know, nobody goes to university to do a degree in journalism because they want to write crap stories. You know, they're, they're doing what the advertisers and the powers that be think is what people want. So, and I guess that's another thing is is that our desire for information has grown over the years and we seem to be happy to fill that with whatever. Um, you know, look at the growth of reality TV shows. You know, almost that creativity and innovation in entertainment and knowledge has been, you know, decimated by our desire for fast, quick information and entertainment. You know, it's just just pummeled at us. I think I read the somewhere the other day that we 
we are being hit with um, 72 terabytes of information a day. Wow. That's amazing. No wonder we're all losing it because it's just boom, 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 and most of it's crap. So I don't think it's going to get any better. Donald Trump coined the phrase, well, used the phrase anyway, fake news. And it's something that uh, really is part of our daily doctrine these days. What do you think about how social media is affecting the news landscape? Oh, yeah. I can't believe I'm agreeing with Donald Trump. Um, Yeah, I mean, social media is such a great platform to push out whatever you bloody well want. You know, you've got, wasn't it some AFL player yesterday came out and had a whinge about vaccinations and what his take on it was? And so he's using his Instagram platform to go out to hundreds of thousands of people who think the sun shines out of his bum (laughs) and they're going to take that as gospel. It's like, oh, well, I heard this person say that. It's like, but where's his credentials? Where's his authority in that space? So really, social media really trickles down the, the essence of what the information is. It dilutes it and it makes it just candy, you know, Actually, the vision that came into my head was very floss. You know, it looks like it's got substance, but, you know, you stick it on your tongue and, you know, it just dissolves. And that's what social media is doing to information is that anybody can position themselves as an expert. Let's face it, there's lots of experts out there. You know, they've done six-week course in this or they've done an online course in that and all of a sudden they... You know, they're a, a nutritionist or they're an energy healer or, you know, they're a marketing expert. And if you, you know, there's something I learned a long time ago. So I'm able to, you know, get in and do things. And people are like, how did you manage that? And I said, just look like you're meant to be there. You know, if you walk with authority and you talk with authority, then people don't question you. And that's what a lot of people use social media for is they get there, they look good, they sound good, you know, they've got all of the right, you know, marketing and collateral around them and woof, off they go. Because people people want to feel safe and they want to feel like people are looking out for them. And um, if you can do that with enough authority, then they'll believe whatever you roll out. Okay, so fake it till you make it. Yeah, absolutely. But in the worst possible way. (laughs) Worst possible way. I mean, like, fake it till you make it, like, works, you know, like imposter syndrome. So, you know, it's that horrible, pesky little voice that we have inside of our head that says, you can't do it. Who do you think you are? They're going to find out you're a fake. You know, you're a loser. And even though you've, and it's it's mostly successful people who suffer from imposter syndrome, but if you just go, you know what, I'm just going to ignore that voice and I'm going to keep going. I have the skills. I've gone to university. I've worked in this space for however many years. I can do it. But these people on social media, it's almost like they don't have that that self-reflection filter where they're going, you know what, I'm actually really doing more damage. But they also think that they're right. So 
who am I to say they're not? Well, they don't also have an editor overseeing what they've written or produced or put out because you give any kid a camera and he's suddenly uh, an influencer. Yeah, and we can all be journalists now. You just pick up, you know, you've got a microphone, you know, you're a radio broadcaster, you know, podcast broadcaster. You know, I can go on onto Wix this afternoon and open up a template for a magazine-style website and I can start going and getting content from all over and be pushing out the message that I want to um, impact people with because, I mean, we are easily influenced. That's how bra our brains work. <laughs> you know, we, we, you hear and you see something often enough and you start to believe it. Because it sounds like the accountability is just going. Yeah, I, look, I mean, in newsrooms, they still have editors. They still have copy editors, sub-editors, but they don't have as many as they used to be. Like I said, they're, they're pumping out stuff really quickly. But, like, I, I ran rang a major state newspaper a few weeks ago. You know, um, a journalist had written a story about a client that was untrue, and I went, I need to speak to this person because... I need to know where he, well, maybe not where he got his information from, but how do we tell the other side? And I couldn't get through. The, the phone number just redirected off to the parent organisation, whereas before you'd be able to ring the news desk and say, hey, can I speak to the chief of staff or can I speak to the news editor? And going through my you know, online database, I couldn't even find someone to contact to speak to about what this journalist had written. So I had to go directly to him. And needless to say, he wasn't very happy with our conversation and uh, was very aggressive. And it's like, I, I could have avoided this by talking to your chief of staff and just saying, because the chief of staff doesn't have that emotional investment in the story like the journalist does. So we could have got a clear run, but you can't talk to anybody. It does, it does make it very difficult. You're obviously passionate about news. You started as an investigator, as a reporter. <laughs> you started off as a reporter. What spurned your passion in news? I was, I've, I've always been a lover of books, of reading, of stories. You know, I just, when I close my eyes and I think back to being a kid, the, my happiest memories is sitting somewhere with a book, you know, it was, you know, Enid Blyton, Famous Five, Secret Seven, you know, Nancy Drew, Hardy Boys, you know, all of those great adventure stories. And, and because as a kid, we moved around a lot. So I was always the new kid and I was being picked on. And so I took refuge in the school library. So I would, you know, be reading even more books and then when you hit around 10, people start asking you what you want to do when you grow up. Um, it's almost like a rite of passage. So what do you want to do when you grow up? And it's like, I'm 10. I just want to go home and watch the goodies and Doctor Who. <laughs> that's, my, that's my priority for this day. But, you know, I was a pretty serious kid and it was like, oh, I suppose I should start thinking about it. So, you know, I, I found a book in the library on how to choose your career. 
or how to find a job or something like that. Can't remember what it was called. And you know, it talked about you know uh, write down all your skills and then go and match them. So I wrote down all my skills. You know, I like writing. I like reading. And so I found a section in this book, and it had like um, teacher, librarian, lawyer, journalist, and I went, oh. And read the description of journalist and one of my favorite shows don't judge me was 60 minutes i'm judging 60 you 60 minutes the <laughs> stories were just like i love the stories and you know i'd watch ray martin and he was just so commanding and you know yarn event was just so powerful and hard hitting with the questions and you know that look that she would aimed down at, you know, the person she was interviewing and it was like, wow, that looks like really cool. Imagine being paid to ask questions. Imagine being paid to ask questions that are difficult and that people don't want to answer, but you're in a position where they have to answer you. So I went, that sounds like a good job to me. I'm going to be a journalist. You know, I'm going to be a journalist because then I get to write I get to ask questions. I get to read all the time. Perfect. I'm sold. So that's really where it came from, was being bullied and hiding in a library. What's the biggest story that you wrote? Um, well, look, you know, I, I was starting out, I was not a, you know, front page journalist. I did, you know, IT, business, tech, sport. You know, I wrote for the history pages, very exciting. But I guess the biggest story that I wrote was probably later when I was um, a stringer for the senior newspaper. And I wrote a series of articles about um, elder abuse and financial abuse. And the story was nominated for um, an, an OPSO award, Older People Speak Out Award, which is was the industry's you know, award recognising people, championing and advocating for older people. So that was probably the biggest one, you know, talking to people who had had been abused financially by their family. You know, the woman who was in her 80s, whose daughter had stolen her house out from underneath her. And, you know, shining the lawn that this is happening in the 90s. And, you know, the, and the things that the government was starting to do to protect, um, you know, the, the older people in the community from that abuse. So that would be it because it was just, you know, I'd grown up in a house with my grandparents and with, you know, the the, the ringing in my ears from my mum is, you know, you, you know, you respect older people, you know, look at how they've helped build a country. So for me, it was like, it was almost really personal as well because it was like, how, how can we be treating people like this who've worked their guts out and then you come along and just steal from them. So that that was a pretty big story. How important are grandparents? Well, that is a loaded question <laughs> because, to, and, and, I'll, and I'm going to tell you why, um, I think grandparents are really important. Um, when I was little, my mum was a single parent so both her her parents and my father's parents played a really big role in my life so because 
you know, in the 70s, they didn't have single parent payment. They didn't have a pension. So mum would have to work multiple jobs to put food on the table, sometimes successfully, a lot of the times not so successfully. So we were shipped off to the grandparents quite a bit because, you know, nice safe home, lots of food, warm, you know, not having a screaming mother yelling at you because you put your, your dirty, grotty little fingers on the wall because she's so stressed and out of her mind. Um, and now that I have kids and the kids only have one grandparent left, I really feel that loss for them because there's a different relationship that you have with your grandparents as you do with your parent, your gestational parent. Um, because I can remember, I love my mother's mother. She was a hard-nosed woman. Not everybody liked her. But I thought she was just the bee's knees and I'd had so much fun with her. She was so crafty and creative and she'd dress us up and take us to her CWA meetings. And I went to my first drive-in with her. You know, we'd go on picnics. We just had such a beautiful time. And my father's mother and father were very old school and old worldly. You know, Pop still would wear a, a suit for afternoon tea. You know, wow. So you'd go over there and he'd be sitting there and then we'd be having our scones and our cup of tea and he'd be in this full suit with a vest and a tie and, you know, it was just so wonderful. And, you know, we'd go off to church and sit in the sunroom and all read and because he was blind, um, you know, it's the best time, curled up on his lap, listening to his books or listening to him talk about the war or you know, just talking about life. So, or sitting under the house with him while he made his stout. And oh, those you know, were the days. Still, yeah, and I can still remember the smell of under the house and the meat locker and, oh, my God, I feel so old now. It's like my kids are going, meat locker? What's a meat locker? But so grandparents are really important. And the reason I paused is because I lived with my grandparents from when I was 10 to 16. And um, my grandfather was uh, an abuser, a sexual abuser. So he made my sisters and my life quite horrific for the six years that we lived with him. And, and it was really hard because it was, of course it was really hard, but like feeling like you couldn't tell anybody. So he, 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 he got away with a lot until, you know, I just went, nah, I had enough of this, this is wrong, and told my mother. But it really changed my relationship with my nan, of course, because, you know, we moved, they left, and really didn't have a lot to do with them. So I, I always feel really cheated because as a little kid, I just thought my grandfather was just incredible. He was so talented. He, you know, he used to work the lathe and make these beautiful pieces of furniture. And I can remember as a you know five-year-old sitting in his workshop and he'd give you a piece of wood and some hammer and nails and you'd sit there and you'd bang away. Um, and, you know, following him around the garden because he was an avid gardener or, you know, hopping in the car while he puffed away on his rollies and, you know, he, you know, he'd talk about, you know, that I, I was born in Tassie and we'd drive around Bernie and he'd talk about, you know, his home. So 
yeah, that was that was hard because it was like I feel like I've lost my grandparents and it wasn't my fault. Have you forgiven him? Uh, yeah, I have. I'll never forget, but I have forgiven him. I haven't forgiven, yeah, I have forgiven him, doesn't forgive his behaviour because he did deny it. Um, And I, I guess what makes it really hard is that when you tell your family and they don't believe you, or, you know, because I told a lot of them because it was in my book um, last year what had happened, they're all like, why are you bringing this up now? Surely it's better to just leave it alone. And it's like, because I think we even when we we forgive someone, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't acknowledge the bad behaviour or, or the, the heinous, that was heinous behaviour, is that we if we don't talk about these things, then we make it okay for it to keep happening because people don't feel safe to speak up when people disbelieve them and shoot them down. And I'm tough enough to go, you know, I really haven't had much to do with that side of the family my entire life. You know, the last time I saw a couple of my uncles, my mother's brothers, was when she died. She's been gone almost 17 years. So, you know, it's not like we're really close, but I thought, well, you know, maybe you should know that this is the person that you thought was, you know, a good old bloke. He wasn't. (laughs) What's your relationship with your uncles now? Oh, non-existent. Uh, My mother's younger brother, I keep in contact, Um, you know, not as frequently as my sister does, but, you know, every few months he'll ring me or I'll ring him and we'll have a good old natter. Um, But my mother's two older brothers I haven't spoken to for decades. Like I said, since my mum died and they came to her funeral, like they've never reached out. They've, you know, even after mum had died, you know, I had had a three-year-old and a newborn and, you know, I just nursed mum through, you know, cancer and watched her die in the hospital and just never heard from them. They never went, are you guys okay? Do you need anything? You know, do you want to talk? Anything. So I was kind of like, well, this is kind of the way I, I felt our life had been, you know, when mum was by herself with the two of us, that it was always just us and her against the world. So. you know it made me tough resilient and determined because if someone's not there to pick you up or to support you then you just have to get in and do it yourself how was your relationship with your mother obviously from what you're saying fairly tight uh yeah and particularly like well when i was a kid though i thought she was the biggest bitch on the planet she was she was tough as nails and and determined and hardworking and um, you know just I always thought that she was like one of the bravest people that I knew but she was hard and as a mum looking back I can see why when you're struggling to put food on the table and feed your kids and clothe them and pay rent and because your husband's walked out on you and left you with nothing and you don't have any real bankable skills, then 
I appreciate how stressed, like she must have been out of her mind through most of my childhood. You know, I can remember sitting at, at the table when I was a kid, I would have been like five or six, and thinking how skinny my mum was. You know, like she'd always been not round, but, you know, tall and athletic. She, she, she played state basketball. She was a softballer. She played squash. You know, she was really active and very fit. But I can remember thinking, oh, you know, mummy looks really skinny. Like, she, I mean, she was always dieting. She was always dieting. And then as I look back as an adult, it's like she wasn't dieting. She was not eating because there wasn't enough food for her to eat. You know, she would give us food and she always made it seem like it was really special. So we had we ate a lot of Vegemite on toast um, and we ate a lot of tomato soup and we ate a lot of baked beans and a lot of savoury mints. But she would always, you know, like she would, you know, we'd eat our tomato soup and our crumpets and Vegemite and watch Mr Squiggle. And it was a big thing to be able to do that. But, yeah, her diets were, were her not eating. So I, even though she could be really hard and she could be really horrible because she was a big one who used silence as a way of getting back at you. So, like, if you did something wrong, then she, you could go for a week and she wouldn't speak to you. You know, hey, mum, can you please sign my book report? And she'd just grunt and sign. And that would be it. Night, mummy. Mm. And I'd be like, mm. so I, I, I grew up with a lot of, of guilt of, you know, like I've made my mother's life so hard, you know. And I, I've, when she died, I found all of these poems that I wrote to her begging for her forgiveness. And it was like, oh, my God, that's, that's how easy is it for us to damage our children by not, working on ourselves but i guess in the 70s and 80s we didn't have the personal development movement that we have now but you know as i got older and 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 particularly as i got past 25 because that seems to be when your brain fully forms and you start becoming a functional human being is that i could acknowledge the stress and the trauma of her life and that whilst she had damaged me psychologically and emotionally that it wasn't all her fault, that there were so many circumstances that had impacted her life, that made her life hard. And who do you take it out on? The people closest to you. So she'd take it out on my sister and I. But I forgave her and we were really, really close. Um, you know, from 25 to when she died, I was... Um, 34, 35, when mum died. So we would, we'd go to the beach together and go shopping and, you know, I'd go hang out at her house. Our favourite time of the year was State of Origin <laughs> where, you know, she'd make something because she loved her sport. Um, she'd make something special and we'd go over and watch the game with her or she'd come to our house. And we really, by this time I was with my, my husband, Earl, and we just folded her into the love that we had for each other into our family. So she always felt like she had someplace safe to go because she'd never had that in her life. But 
I think when she died, I think she was glad to go because she she was only 60, but she looked so tired. And, and I remember looking at her when she died, like when I got to the hospital and she's lying there, you know, dead in her bed and thinking, wow, I've never seen my mum look so relaxed and it took death to give her the look her face should have had. You know, the lines were all gone and she looked so peaceful and of course she was peaceful. She wasn't breathing, her heart wasn't pounding, but it was like, this is what you should have looked like because you should have had to have dealt with all of that trauma in your life. But, you know, I guess it is what it is. I'm the person I am because of it. And, you know, I think despite our challenges, she always pushed me to never give up and I've just never given up thanks to thanks to good old Judy. How were the conversations that you had with her as you were nursing her as she was dying? Uh, yeah, they were, they were deep and meaningful, you know. We, we talked about things that she had avoided, you know, through most of her life and, and I learnt a lot about her early life in those, you know, months between her being diagnosed and her dying. And, like, she was, she was diagnosed, it was New Year's Day, out in 2005 and she died June 2005 so it was really quick and very aggressive but you know those the the month that she was in hospital and in palliative care is that you know at the time I had you know a, a baby my youngest uh, my eldest was in and out in daycare or with his dad and I'd go and sit at the hospital with mum every day you know, most of the time she slept because of pain. But, you know, we talked about my father who left when I was three and why she thought he'd left and what happened and how she met him. And, you know, we talked about Pop and what he had done and and the impact that it had on our family and um, talked about her second husband who was an absolute scoundrel um, who, you know, like I learnt that he used to hold her at gunpoint. So she'd go out with her friends and come home and he'd be so jealous that he would sit there all night with a shotgun pointed at her because he thought she was out, you know, cheating. And, you know, and here we are asleep in our beds and this is all happening while we're asleep. So, you know, I learned a lot about her life, which made it easy to forgive her because, you know, she wasn't deliberately being, you know, bitchy or nasty or mean. She was just a stressed out human being doing her best and you know and I don't think my sister and I ever went hungry um she we always had a birthday present and a Christmas present um you know we we never missed out on those they weren't extravagant or expensive but she just always did her best to make sure we had what little we could have so yeah, it was, it was really good. I felt really close to her those last few weeks because she kind of felt, I mean, she knew she had an out. She wasn't going to be there for long so she could share those stories. Although it did leave me with a lot of unanswered questions. There's some things that I'll never know. I've asked her brother and he was like, he was a good few years younger than mum. So there's a lot of things that happened when she was growing up that he's not aware of because he was, um, I don't know, five years younger than her. So, 
you know, by the time she'd finished high school, he was just starting. So that would be nice to know, but it is what it is. Because of what's happened to you with your grandparents or your grandfather, how's it affected you with your kids? Oh, I've we've protected them fiercely, you know, from as, as soon as they could understand, we talked about, you know, permission around your body, you know, who, who can touch you and, and given them the space that they can say no if they want to, to whatever that is, obviously, politely, if necessary, or with uh, a bit more ferocity, if appropriate. So our boys... You know, I look at them and I think they're in such a great place because they've not grown up with any trauma. You know, they've got two parents who still love each other. We've been together 26 years. Um, you know, I was home for 10 years of their life. You know, they were read to, we played games, they did sports. You know, we were there for their sport. We've been there for almost every milestone of their life. But I think the trade-off there is, is they're probably a little less resilient than what my husband and I are because we both grew up in worlds where you had to be a lot tougher. Um, you know, and I think too that maybe we were a little more overprotective of them, you know, but... It's the world that we live in. I think my generation as parents have maybe overcompensated a little bit for our baby boomer parents who, you know, like I was walking to and from school when I was five years old, you know, coming home to an empty house with a key. Like my children have never come home as, as little kids to an empty house and no mum there and no afternoon tea. Like it's always been there, but now they have this expectation of this life that they expect from their parents and from the world because we've protected them so much. But, you know, they've, they've been told under no circumstances is anyone ever to touch you that you don't want to touch you. And, but they've never been in that situation where it's happened. So I'm grateful for that because I don't think anybody should live through that type of trauma. You talk about the long-term relationship that you have with your husband. How hard was it to put a relationship together considering that you didn't have the learning and the foundation of seeing a successful relationship? Pragmatism. <laughs> I'm going to say that. Um, like when when I met Earl, I was, you know, I was 25. I was very aware of what I didn't want, you know, and, and one of the things that I said to myself in my head was I never want to be like my mum because I'd watched her be abused by men her whole life. You know, like when I, I look at, at the book that I wrote about my life, my life is peppered with abuse from men, you know, if not not third party through men that mum had in her life or by men that I worked with, and I'm not man bashing here, but there is a definite theme in, like, I think a lot of women's lives who grew up, you know, prior to, you know, the 90s 
um, when we started to get a little bit more savvy about what equality meant is that, you know, we've all, so I know so many women who've been raped and sexually assaulted and abused and, um, you know, bullied by men. Um, and it's, it's horrific to think of the volumes of those women and it does make it hard to then take the next step in a relationship. But I knew what I didn't want. So when I met Earl, he was totally opposite to every other man I'd, I'd had in my life as a boss or as a boyfriend or as my mum's boyfriend. I can remember my mum saying when I introduced him to her, she rang me and she went, because I'd taken him over to meet her and a best friend. And she'd rung and she said, Shirley and I are like, he's, he's so nice. Like, he's too nice. And I can remember thinking, what's too nice? Like, is too nice a bad thing? Because she made it sound like it was a bad thing, that he was too nice. Obviously, it was too good to be true because she was so used to being abused. So I went, that's exactly what I want. I want nice. I want responsible. I want loyal. I want kind. I want caring. I want thoughtful. And he was this person who was all of those things. Um, and I think also to being open and honest with him about what I had experienced. Um, and mind you, though, we both had baggage and we both had to be accepting that sometimes we reacted to things because of past experiences. But uh, I guess we've just puddled our way through and you know, it's not always been good, it's not always been great, but then it, there's, there's so many more times where it's just been fantastic. And, you know, we still have a great time together. You know, we've still got a, things in common and we still laugh together and, you know, we still argue and we have, you know, those times where it's like, you're annoying you're annoying but you know i guess that's a good relationship is that we always keep coming back together is that the biggest thing for a successful relationship yeah it is here he is now giving me a cup of tea how good start talking about you you're on radio i'm um, interviewed being interviewed all right you can give me a kiss goodbye all right bye-bye darling see ya there you go. I've got my cup. <laughs> He's awesome. He looks after me. Was there so, a sabotage mechanism with the fact that he was so nice? Did you try and destroy it? No. Not once. Because I knew what I didn't want. I knew that I knew that I did not want to have my mother's life. I knew that I didn't want to be hating men i knew that i didn't want them to be this enemy for the rest of my life and the only way that i could and, and i think this is all subconscious because i don't think i was aware enough or woke enough but i think subconsciously i knew that if i was going to change the pattern of my life from my mother's life then i needed to do something different so i i never sabotaged our relationship I was always open and and honest and and forthright about what I wanted and what I didn't want and um, you know we've we've always been pretty good at you know saying you know look you suck that you did this 
the way that that made me feel or, you know, and, and we don't always get it right, you know, because, you know, we're humans, we get lazy and we take each other for granted and, you know, we, we get annoyed at little things. But I think when it comes to the big things is that our values were intertwined enough and aligned that we knew that we were on that path. I can remember us sitting on the couch and we and we did come together with the joint love of VB and Star Trek. So it really bonded us together. And I can remember nights where we'd be sitting on the couch and we'd, you know, just been frantically waiting for the next Voyager uh, video, <laughs> DVD video to come out. And we just like look at each other and go, I'm so glad that I found you because, you know, we have similar likes and, you know, we've got similar politics and, but there was enough difference about us that it meant that we could, you know, we, we could grow and learn and bounce off each other. And I think that's really important. You know, you never want someone who's the same as you because it gets boring and, you know, even now, Earl is so different to me. And as we get older, I see those differences a lot more because, you know, I am who I am and he is who he is. Um, and there's enough of that for us to still talk about, you know, interesting and, and incredible things, which is real, which I find, like, how can you still find stuff to talk about after 26 years? And yeah, we do. You talk about your book. It's got an interesting title. It's also quite serious. The title, how did you come up with it? I had a little bit of help there. So my business partner, Lauren Clement, and I were in the car. We were coming back from somewhere and I called it something else. And I'd said oh, something about, oh, I've eaten so many shit sandwiches. And she went, oh, why don't you call it? how to eat a shit sandwich and and i went yeah but it's really important people know that this isn't just all doom and gloom that there's a real message through the book and the message is that you can have really bad things happen to you but it's how you deal with them between your ears that makes all the difference to the, your ongoing future so my attitude has always been i've always sought refuge in humor sometimes not in a healthy way because you know it's really easy to you know brush something off with a, a flip remark or a sarcastic comment but as i thought back through my life and my experiences and how i'd come through them reasonably unscathed is it because i always found the light in the dark and so we came up with how to eat a shit sandwich and keep smiling because, you know, let's let's face it, my, my book is nowhere near the worst that has ever happened to someone on the planet. And I'm not comparing. I'm not saying, oh, mine's not as bad. It was bad for me. But compared to someone else, you know, there's far worse things that have happened to people. And, and I've seen those people have incredible lives because they've worked on themselves, that they've not dwelled in the past, that they've used it as a launching pad to become bigger and better and stronger and wiser and smarter. 
So I really wanted that message to come through my book that you can read these horrible stories, but in between them is all of these really funny moments and, you know, interesting moments that sheds light on who I am as a person and how I deal with life. And that is by finding the light in the dark, you know, the, the silver lining. And that's why one of my favourite sayings is it is what it is, because something really bad could like I could get up from here and fall over and break my leg as I go up the stairs because I do try to carry too much and you know breaking your leg would be pretty bad to make it hard to have showers and go to the toilet you can't move around but I could then lie in bed for six weeks and write another book <laughs> I can't do anything else you know or I could sit there and you know binge watch Grey's Anatomy from start to end and that would give me joy or you know I could, there's so many things that i could do because of that broken leg now that broken leg is bad but i'd find a way to make it work in my favor because there's something good that will always come out of bad but it's like when something good happens to us you know something good can happen and then something bad will come because of that or something bad will happen and you can find something good out of it so, yeah, so the book title came from my friend Lauren who went and we bounced it around and I went, that's it, that's perfect. It sums me up because, you know, I've got a bit of a potty mouth. Um, you know, the swear words drop like bombs in this house. <laughs> I don't even think about it. And then I go, oh, okay, maybe that might have offended somebody. But, um, but it also shows my sense of humour because it's like, yeah, you know, shit sandwich. Who wants to eat a shit sandwich? That sounds absolutely disgusting. You probably wouldn't be able to even get it up to your mouth before <laughs> the smell got you. And the smiling part is that, you know, there's there's always something that you can find to smile about in this world, even when it's, you know, feels like everybody hates you or, you know, it's it's all going crazy and, you know, it's just doing your head in something will happen like you know your husband walks up to say goodbye to you and brings you a cup of tea and you go oh that's pretty cool i'm happy about that was it good therapy for you writing your book oh the best um absolutely the best it was you know that saying better out than in <laughs> oh my god i just and like there's so much that did go into my book that you know, because if I just kept writing, it would have been, I don't know, two volumes. But it was awesome to be able to share stories that no one had ever heard about my life, even to me, out loud, that I just kept in my head and then see it on the page and go, wow, you're pretty kick-ass. How did you get through that? Um, or, wow, I can remember that. I remember learning that in that moment. Um, but I, I will say I was actually quite sick when I finished the book. Um, you know, you can probably hear now I'm a bit nasally. I, I get, I have the worst hay fever on the planet. I really should be in a bubble. I'm allergic to everything. Um, and when I finished my book, I just got the worst congestion. It was like all of the poison in my body was trying to come out through my nose. Um, so I really struggled for a while, and, but I, I kind of accepted that because it was like you cannot let go of that much stuff 
and not have some physiological reaction to it, which is what I recognise. This is my body getting rid of that. Um, but it was very, it was really cathartic. And the feedback has been like oh, mind-blowingly positive because when you write a book, especially a memoir, you know, it's not like I've written books, I've written business books, you know, how to be a media magnet, um, you know, business storytelling, you know, around my profession. And that's really just like, it's like writing a recipe book. It's like, here you go, there you go. Yeah, there's not a lot of emotional attachment to it. But writing your memoir is, this is, this is me. I'm now going to take all my clothes off and stand in front of you to scrutinise me and, you know, see how hairy my armpits are or, you know, the hair on my chin or the pimple on my, you know, all of those bad bits that we try and hide and I put it all in a book. And my sister said to me, there's one particular chapter that's a bit racy and she said, um, my nephew said, oh, you know, I want to grab a copy of Annie Nettie's book and, and she's gone, well, be careful of this chapter because you will never look at your auntie the same way again. <laughs> and she said, I don't know if I can look at you the same way again. She said, I never knew that about you. And I went, well, it's really not the type of story that you tell sitting around dinner one night. Oh, by the way, did you know that I did this? So being able to do that was, oh, my God, it was so incredibly confronting, Mark. And when I published it and I had my book launch, um, which I decided to do on my birthday, I had this incredible writer's remorse. It was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have put that in. Maybe I should have done this or maybe I should have written it this way. And I was like, oh, well, what's done's done. It's out there now. And, um, you know, is it going to be shit? Like, <laughs> are people going to read it and go, you know, that imposter syndrome saying, you know, you're really not as good a writer as what you think you are, Annette. Um, you know, you just, who, who do you think you are sharing your story? But, you know, the feedback is, you know, people are saying, I, I haven't read a book in years and I finished yours in three days. Wow. Um, you know, I picked it up. I couldn't stop reading. You know, I was still lying there at midnight reading your book. It, it was so compelling and so well written. And, and because I wrote it in a very fictional style. So it reads like a fictional book, like like a, a book you'd pick up, um, you know, from whoever your favourite author is. And I wrote it in the tone of voice of the person I was at the time. So it's the first chapter starts when I'm three. So the language is very toddler, you know, the, you know, the, the, the tone that I use, like you can tell that I'm a little kid. And then as I move up through the different ages, you know, 11 and 12 and 15, 16, my language changes and obviously evolves as I mature and, um, and I grow. So it was, uh, people love that. It was just, they were saying, I could hear you. I could hear you as I was reading. Your voice was in my head. And I was like, that's awesome. I've gone and grabbed them and I've held them there, not just with my story, but with the way that I told my story. Was there anything that was off limits in the book? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no, there was no. If, if anything, 
like when I reread it, I went, I don't always come off as being the best person on the planet. You know, there's there's lots of drug taking and alcohol and, um, you know, like sex with complete strangers and, um, you know, s- stealing and, um, you know, one of, one of the chapters, there's a few chapters, I met this guy when I was in Sydney, he was way older than me, he was in his 50s and I was in my early 20s and he was a cab driver, cab driver, who was a drug dealer who used his cab to sell drugs, marijuana. And he became one of my best friends. And I spent years, he'd come and pick me up from work. I'd finish an 11 o'clock shift at night. He'd take me out to dinner. And he was one of the reasons that I I think I ate so well in Sydney when I worked (laughs) there because he would just feed me. He wanted company in his cab and I wanted free drugs and food. so, you know, it was, a, it was a great relationship. But we became such good friends. Like, he was my saviour. You know, it, when you get to the end of the book, you just realise how important he became to me because, you know, there was just so many times where I just felt so alone and he was always there. You know, I'd go over to his house and <laughs> go over to his... He was the most... He's gone now the most eccentric oddball I'd ever met in my life. Um, so pedantic and anal. And, and I think now he'd probably be diagnosed with Asperger's or, or autism. And he had this fixation for numbers and everything had to be in a certain way. So you'd go over to his house and he lived in this flat on the, you know, um, where did he live? Like Maroubra, Coogee um, Randwick in Sydney. And he had this two-bedroom flat up on the second floor and he had his bedroom and the lounge room was just full of shit. And he lived between his bedroom and the second bedroom, which was like his lounge room come drug storage area (laughs) slash drug preparation area. So I would often go over there, you know, in the afternoon before I started work and sit on the couch and we'd sit and watch recordings of the footy show or the X-Files. We both loved the X-Files. And he'd sit there with his old-fashioned scales weighing up $50 bags <laughs> for the work of that night where he'd go out and people would ring him up. He'd go drop off the bags and, and off he'd go to the next one. And I just had the best time with him. You know, he was, he was definitely a strange, strange person. But he was just, it was lots of fun. <laughs> so that's in the book, you know, like who goes and tells people that you like your best friend was a drug dealer and that you used to sometimes help him, you know, because I, I look back and I think, oh, my God, I was, I, was, I was supplying drugs to people. It didn't even dawn on me at the time as he allowed me. So he was very possessive over his space that he allowed me to sit there and do the the weighing job for him. So he'd have these big blue barrels filled with pounds and pounds. And I'd sit there and I'd go, okay, watching the X-Files, not even thinking that what I was doing was incredibly illegal and would put me in jail. Never, I never got caught. So, you know, you've, you've got chapters where I talk about stuff like that. And it's like, I don't think I come off as the hero 
you know, definitely come off as a very naughty girl. <laughs> she's not the Messiah. She's a very naughty girl. How would you describe yourself if you had to after, if you'd read the book? How would I describe the person in the book yeah. or the person I am now? Both. Okay. Uh, the person in the book is someone who made the best of the worst possible situations. And she is gutsy and determined and very naughty, um, who doesn't mind pushing the rules to suit her purposes. Um, she's a lot of fun and she's very loyal and dedicated to her friends and her family. Um, but she certainly likes to have a rip of good time. And I guess I'm not that different. I'm just not as naughty <laughs> as I used to be. Because I have to set a good example. I've got two sons. I don't want them to, you know, I don't want them to live the life that I did because, you know, I, I started smoking pot when I was 13. Like, I've got a 17-year-old son who has never touched it and I don't want him to because I think that if I'd had a different childhood, I would have an incredibly different life in terms of the success of my career. But it is what it is. That was then. This is now. So the Annette now is just as determined. You know, she's tough but fair, loves a good laugh, um, is fiercely loyal, is certainly not as serious as what she was in her 20s. Um, she's a lot more willing to let things go, um, you know, because don't sweat the small stuff because it's all the small stuff. And um, she's a bit of a larrikin. I'm incredibly sarcastic. I've got a wicked, dirty sense of humour that not everybody sees because I, I almost think in this day of social media that you've got to be really careful. And I'm not saying being fake, is that I don't share my whole personality on social media because, yeah, I certainly have a very bent way of looking at the world that I... My friends know, my family know, but not every not everybody needs to know everything about you. So, yeah, so I think that that Annette in the book and this Annette are really not that dissimilar. Um, we're just a little bit older, a little more wiser. Um, but I certainly haven't lost that sense of fun and um, the desire to laugh at whatever I can, wherever I can, and see the humour even in the bleakest moments, because that's what gets you through. Because you talk about uh, using humour for dark situations. When you did the launch, you did it at a, uh, at a comedy show. Um, how important is, well, you're also uh, a comedian in your own right. Um, how hard is it to make people laugh, do you think? I don't think it's hard. When I did the, so I did a comedy course with the uh, amazing Fiona McGarry. Um, she does these weekend courses where she, you know, helps you pull together, you know, a comedy set. And she says, you know, your job is not to make them laugh. And it's like, I, I struggled with that for a while. And it was like, when you're deliberately trying to make people laugh, it's, hard to do that because they they sense that that it's disingenuous that you're 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 trying to get something out of them 
I think the best way to make people laugh, and I find when people laugh the most at me, is when I'm being myself and when I'm just saying how it is. So, and that's what the funniest comedians in the world do. They make it seem effortless, but they, they do put their jokes together very cleverly. But when they get on stage, they're just being them. They're, they're sharing with you how they see the world. And quite often they see the world and, and how I see the world is how other people do, but they're too scared to say, or they're too scared to acknowledge it because it is a little bit naughty. And so being able to do that so people can see themselves in you and you in them is what makes people laugh. And I, it, it, and I, don't, I don't think it's hard. I make people laugh every day. Sometimes I don't even realise that I've made them laugh. And I've gone, that wasn't funny. I wasn't trying to be funny. But then I go, that's just how I look at the world. You know, I see the funny and it just comes out of my mouth. And, you know, it's, it's great making people laugh. Do you make your kids laugh? Uh, not as much as I used to because, <laughs> you know, they, they are, you know, 17 and 20. So I get a lot of the eye rolls. <laughs> my, young, my youngest son, Quinn, is 17 and he's on the spectrum. So he's very black and white. I've, I've had to be very methodical in teaching him what sarcasm is because I'm very sarcastic. So when he was little, he just wouldn't get it. Now he goes, that was sarcastic, wasn't it, Mum? Ha, ha, ha. It's like, yeah, thanks, I feel the love. Um, yeah, I think they still, uh, they say that I'm scary because I'm very forthright. <laughs> You're scary, Mum. But, yeah, they still laugh at me. Um but definitely not as much as they did when they were little. They thought I was hilarious when they were little. You know, one of the, I did it before, they they do something naughty and I'd go, they're not the Messiah, they're very naughty boys. And they would just like crack up, you know, channeling Monty Python or, or they'd go around the house going, mum, mum, mum. And I'd go, there's no mum here, my name's Frank. And then they'd laugh and they go, no, your mummy. It's like, no, my name's Frank. I'll go show you my licence. I'm definitely Frank. There's no mums here. Um, so I've, I've taught them to use humour. Uh, my eldest son, Zaid, is he's far smarter, far funnier, far quicker than I ever was at 20. Like he says things and I'm like going, man, you are so clever. He was telling me last night, he works for, you know, major um, linen supply, you know, sheets and towels. And he was, like, doing a bit of a skit around the stupid things that people come in and say. And he's like, excuse me, love, but what are the cotton sheets made of? And he goes, ma'am, you are going to be blown away by this, but they're made of cotton. And just the way he delivered it, it was like, you should be on stage. You are funny and witty and insightful. Have your kids read your book? Uh, no. Um, Quinny, Quinny's been a great salesperson. He sold like six copies at school. So <laughs> the next parent-teacher interview might be really interesting <laughs> as I sit in front of his parents and they're like going, this is Quinn's mum. Uh, but Zade said he doesn't want to read it. Zade's a really sensitive person and 
I think that it probably, he feels it'd be a little bit too confronting for him. A little too much um, so, mummy. A little bit too much mummy. So it's there, he could go pick it up, it's sitting on the table upstairs, but I think he's happy just knowing his mum as she is now. Are there plans for another book? Well, I have been asked multiple times for a part two, and because how to eat a shit sandwich is the first 25 years of my life. I went, well, I could do the next 25, but I, I don't know whether it's as interesting or as as, um, as detailed as what the first is, but well, I guess I could. I do, I have two fictional books that I've been plotting out. Um, one is about a New Zealand journalist who uncovers a plot with the New Zealand government and flees to buttfuck somewhere Western Queensland to escape <laughs> and falls in love with the local um, pool lifesaver. And then, so a little bit in the style of um, Marion Keyes, who's an Irish writer who writes these great stories about middle-aged women and they're very funny and very insightful. Um, and then the other one's about... Uh, uh, a house so it got me thinking of I was listening to Stephen Fry talking about his love for Greek mythology and he was talking about the hearth you know how that the house used to centre around the fire or the kitchen and now we're all in our separate rooms with our TVs and our devices <laughs> so I went oh I might write a book like called I don't know the four rooms about this house where there's five people living in it, all living these separate lives, and something happens, like a big disaster happens, and they've got to get to know each other and pull together to get over it. So it's going to be a bit of a science fiction fantasy. So I just I just need some time uh, to write them. So maybe I do need to break my leg. After your operation, you can just lie back and relax and write. Yep. You talk about the cab driver that you were very close to and also your son is on the spectrum. Autism is fairly important to you. Tell us about what you do and how it's affected you and, and what you'd like to share as far as the autism message is. Uh, well, Quinny, who's, as I said, 17 now, um, has is on the spectrum. Uh, he wasn't officially diagnosed until he was 10. So his first few years at school were just traumatic for him and for us because, you know, once you get into an institution like the education system, there's not a lot of individual focus and, you know, this is the way we've always done it type of view and they're, and they're very conservative. Um, now, I haven't been to every school in every state in the whole of Australia. So I'm sure there's schools out there who aren't. But in my experience, having been a student at school and putting two kids through school is that I found them not the most welcoming place if you're different. So for Quinny, his first few years at school were quite horrible. He was labelled the naughty boy. Um, you know, by the time he'd reached grade five, he'd lost, you know, over 250 days of school through suspension. Wow. And Flexible learning, which is a euphemism for 
only bringing a kid to school for a couple of hours because we can't cope with him the rest of the time. And by the way, don't worry about his um, education is that you just have to help him catch up with that. And it's like, I'm not a teacher. I'm the worst teacher on the planet. For Quinn, it really set him. Like before he went to school, even though I knew he was different, um, and, there, and, and having worked in disability services, I guessed that he had autism. I took him to the doctor, you know, my GP, who went, oh, there's nothing wrong with the kid, he's fine. And I'm like going, no, I don't know. Yeah, he is fine, but there's something about this kid that is going to make his life really challenging. And no one believed me. So we just kept going, kept going. And, um by the time he got to grade five, we met this amazing teacher, support teacher, um, who recommended that he go to this program for six weeks outside of school, which, um, you know, she put us in touch with a paediatrician. Once you've got a label, there's a whole world of difference to the support that you can get. You've got to have a label to get through the school system. Um, but, you know, for Paul Quinn, the damage had already been done psychologically to his self-esteem, you know, his belief in who he was and how he showed up in the world. He was ostracized by his peers, by his peers' parents. You know, he was not invited to parties. Everybody else was except for him. You know, you try sitting down and explaining to your eight-year-old son why he's not allowed to go to someone's party because of someone he thinks is his friend because their parents have got their heads so far up their asses that they don't, they didn't stop to ask questions. And every year I'd write a letter to the, the class to give to the parents and explain, this is my son, this is how he shows up, he's not a naughty kid, you know, he has autism and this is the way it expresses and he's not meaning to be loud and violent but he just gets frustrated and his brain can't cope. Um, but it didn't make any difference. So by the time he got to high school, it was just compounded because we've gone from one teacher who I could work with as a team to six teachers, half of them who didn't think there was anything wrong with him based on their learned medical experience and the other half who would just go above and out of their way. And I learned that unless the school administration is behind you and willing to work as a team, it's almost impossible to get the support that you need. So Quinn was suspended three weeks into his first year in high school um, and was suspended another four times throughout the year, often because he was being bullied by teachers. So wow. he would, and, and he's my child, so not only does he have the black and white nature of someone with autism, but he also speaks his mind. And I've encouraged him to do that. So he would tell the teacher that that wasn't fair or that wasn't true. And then they would tell him to sit down and be quiet because his opinion wasn't worth it. And he would arc up. So the teacher wouldn't get punished, but he would. So it, it's been a real crazy ride for all of us because we've had to learn about him and how his autism shows up as a really faint temple um temple what's the last name 
Temple Grande, Grande Temple. That's terrible. I can't remember her name. She's really famous for saying, if you've met one person with autism, you've only met one person with autism. It's a spectrum. On that spectrum, it shows up in so many different ways. So Quinn's high functioning. So he's incredibly intelligent. He can carry a conversation. He can look you in the eye. But then his autism symptoms are that um, that social awkwardness, like he just has no filter and, you know, doesn't understand that you can't say to someone, oh, yeah, you look really fat today. It's like, you know, dude, you can't, you can't say that. Why not? Because they are. And I go, yeah, I get that. I understand. Because you've always told me to tell the truth. And it's like, how do you explain <laughs> to someone who sees the world with black and white? So... I'm really uh, a strong advocate for not just awareness, but acceptance of people who are different, whether it's autism or gender or sexual preference or culture or race or tall, short, fat, thin, is that we need to just accept people where they're at. If they're not being assholes and they're not trying to make the world a worse place, they're just doing the best that they can, is that we really need to be looking outside of our own heads so that we can see where other people are coming from and realise that, you know, we all add value to this world. And, you know, Quinn's value to this world is incredible. You know, his sense of humour, his observations of human interactions, um, you know, his work ethic, um, you know, that this kid who's 17 now has just started to drive, who went to EB Games yesterday and was offered a job, you know, he's defied the odds of being told that he probably wouldn't get a job, you know, that, you know, he, he these things wouldn't happen for him. But because people have accepted him, those who have, wow, it just allows people to blossom. And I think that we're really squishing people down who are different by not accepting them for who they are and trying to make them fit into what we think that they should be. So I think if you've got people in your life that are a little bit different, embrace them because they just add so much value to your world, so, so much joy and, and so many wonderful insights that make you a better person. And I think Quinn has made me a better person because whilst I've always been very accepting and not judgmental of people, Quinn's experiences through school um, really highlighted for me just how much more I can show up and be a better person so that I make other people's lives, uh, particularly those, you know, when I say different, I do that with air quotes, those mm. who are different um, and, and that they can shine. When you talk about uh, the cab driver, though, that you did have uh, a fair bit of interaction with, did it help you understanding your son better because you did have that relationship earlier on in your life? Yeah, maybe. But I think what probably helped me more was in between finishing with the newspaper and having kids, I worked for four years in a supported employment warehouse. So I was a support worker. And I worked with 60 people of varying degrees of disabilities and abilities. So uh, people with autism, mental health issues, acquired brain injuries, sensory challenges like hearing and sight, 
um, quadriplegics, paraplegics, you know, like intellectual disability, Down syndrome, you know, it was all of these different people that I worked with. And I, I was, it was a real gift because I'd come out of the newspaper damaged and broken and, you know, just angry at everybody. And, but together enough to go, you know what, if I'm going to get better, I need to, to give back a little bit. I can't afford to do that and not work. So where's a job where I can do both? And I found this job and, and, and did it for four years until I had Zaid. Um, that really helped me because I did a, a postgrad in special education. Um, you know, I did a whole lot of training around train the trainer and productivity work assessments. And, and I spent 40 hours a week with these 60 amazing, different, um, sometimes challenging people. Uh, and it really helped me understand how society viewed them. You know, like there's some things that happened to those people that you just, you, you couldn't write about it. And, and it was unfair and it was unjust. And it quite often came and it still comes from the government who are the people who are meant to be protecting them. So when I had Quinn, which is how I recognised really early that I that he had autism, was... You know, I, I built on those experiences. But, like, when, when I was driving around with Phil, I just thought he was a bit of a nutter. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I'd never even heard of autism or Asperger's. Like, this is a guy, you'd be sitting at the traffic lights in the cab and he was so fixated with numbers and double three, double four was his magic numbers. And, you know, we do this countdown to when the speedometer hit a double three and a double four in sequence and we'd go and celebrate so we'd go have something special for dinner that night um you know go to a nice chinese restaurant instead of you know a little cafe or something that we used to just grab toasted sandwiches from or his pedanticness with how things had to be so i guess maybe that also fed into um why i that I sought out that job when I left the paper because I recognised that, you know, there are people who, who probably still to this day think that he's a weirdo, but he was really just someone trying to find order in his life the best way that he could. And I guess, you know, like I had friends like going, it's really weird that you're driving around with a 54-year-old man and like I'm in my twenties, like, what does he want from you? And I was like, he actually just wants friendship. And that's what he got. You know, I introduced him to some of my friends and when I couldn't drive around with him, they would drive around with him and he got acceptance from us. And we, we encouraged his idiosyncrasies and his, his eccentricities, you know, it became part of the fabric of our day to celebrate double three, double four at some stage <laughs> or, or all ones across the pedometer or when the clock turned over to a 11-11 or something like that. It was like, yay, woo, you know, it's happened. Um, but, yeah, I, those life experiences have helped with Quinn because when he was diagnosed, it wasn't such a shock. It wasn't like, oh, my God, my poor baby boy, you know, you're afflicted with this horrible curse 
called autism. It was more, and I say to him, Quinn, autism is your superpower, mate. You can do things that other people can't and they will never be able to do because their brain doesn't work the same way as yours. So embrace it as something that's good in your life. It's just a different way of your brain working. And it's like my brain sees things differently to yours. And that doesn't make me better or worse or you better or worse. It just means that that's your power. Um, and it's incredible to work with people who see that um, and, and support those who have that incredible power. That is a great way to look at it, a superpower, to turn a great negative into a positive. And that seems to be your message in so many things. Now, I want to move on to the Audacious Agency. Now, how did it all come together? I met this most incredible woman maybe, oh, I know, seven years ago. I was only really new into business. And, you know, Facebook was really just becoming this place for businesses to connect through these, you know, new groups that were popping up. And I would see her a lot in the Facebook groups that I was in and, you know, she'd ask questions and I'd answer or I'd ask a question and she'd answer. And, and, and she is a branding. So she is a cat's mother, as my grandma used to say, but her name is Lauren Clement. And she's got this incredible wealth of experience working in advertising agencies and has become, you know, like a, a leading expert on neurobranding. So, you know, how the brain sees and feels about, um, brands. So she was running a workshop and I went, oh, I might go along to this because, you know, PR and branding go hand in hand. And I think that information would be really beneficial for working with my client. So I went along and she's just so much fun, so intelligent, so knowledgeable. And her workshop was amazing. I learned so much. And um, we just started talking and um, because one of my specialties is writing awards, uh, she had contacted me and said, I'm thinking about entering this awards, but, you know, I think awards are all a bit wanky. And, like, she'd worked in advertising where they were just winning awards left, right and centre and they meant so little that there was just a big rubbish bin full of all of these awards <laughs> because there was just nowhere to put them. So for her, she was seeing this demonstration of, they're just stuff to, you know, whack wherever. They, they really don't mean much. And so I encourage her to enter this particular award, which she did, and she won a silver medal for her work in Eurobranding. And I remember her contacting me and saying, oh, I think there's something in this. And I went, well, why don't we run an event? Um, because there's these big women in business awards on, they're international, you know, they're, they're not too difficult to enter. Um, you know, I've had some success with them. Let's go and get all these women and men in a room and talk about why, you know, acknowledging your successes and wins is a good thing. It's not a bad thing and it's good for business and how awards can help you leverage your message. So we did this event in March 2017 at the um, at Yorongapilli. We had 120 people who came to this lunch. It was like we had um, the Minister for Small Business, Leanne Not came, and we had these incredible women who had entered and won awards on a panel. And um, 
I said to Lauren, why don't we organise a trip to New York to go and attend this award ceremony and create this program and bring people with us? So I organised it. Lauren collaborated with me. We went. We took five women to New York. They all won. We had a smashing time. And we got back and went, well, I think there's something in this. We should really work together. So we, we worked together like in an ad hoc way up until October 2019. Uh, November, yeah, October, November 2019, where we went to New York for the last time. <laughs> since I miss it so much. And, um, you know, I think we took, we had 10 women that came with us that time. And Lauren went, you know what? I think that we should probably put a, we should form a company and we should work together because profile building and PR and awards are all underpinned by branding and we can add real value to the people that we work with. So I went, all right, so um, se September, no, well, the end of that year, we registered the audacious, I can't even say, <laughs> the, the audacious agency as a company and you know so we've been together for a year and a half i call her my partner in shine because we just work so well together um you know we're very open and honest with you know how we're feeling about what we're doing and um you know mind you she has her specialty i have mine and sometimes we can go all week without that crossing over but we always meet in the middle for awards and we do a, a damn good job and like i said we're working on you know a, a, almost a dozen at the moment together and you know a, we just really add value to each other it's like awesome why are in awards so important look at all mine behind me well you've got grand stevies you've got the uh oz uh, mumpreneur which is the one that's most important to you? Um, I'm going to go these ones. So this is the Grant Stevie, and the only way you can win a Hang Grant Hang on, you, can Stevie, you bring it over? Bloody heavy. It, it, this is seriously heavy. When I was awarded this on the stage in New York a couple of years ago, I stood up there and he, the the... MC handed it to me and I went, oh, I didn't expect it to be so heavy. And I went, that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> and everyone laughed because it was funny. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> so that's the, that's the Grand Stevie. So you can only win one of these if you help other people. So with the women and the men, that, so we've won a Grand Stevie for the International Business Awards and we've won three for the Women in Business Awards because we've helped dozens of people bring out their achievements and to be able to articulate those in an award submission which the judges read and go, this person is kicking goals and, you know, and, and building an incredible business. So your question was, why are awards important? Awards are important in the scheme of um, profile building. Um, it's not the only important aspect. It's an ingredient in the overall recipe. 
because awards give you third-party credibility. So I, I can't buy this award. I can't, well, I could, I could hop online and buy one, but it would mean nothing. Like this means something and why it sits so proudly behind me because this is a rep representation of trust of the people I've worked with, trusting me with their business because they've got to tell me a lot of stuff. Like I am inside, I've been inside hundreds of businesses, you know, their, their profit and loss, their revenue, their gross revenue, their percentage growth, the challenges that they've faced, you know, the hardships that they've had to overcome, you know, the, the people that they've worked with, the successes that they've had, they've had to share that so that I can pour into their submission to get this. So from a third party credibility point of view, there's nothing more powerful than someone else like the Stevie saying, you are amazing at what you do and we're going to recognise you with an award. And it's also important because like some people will go, award mean nothing to me, that's fine, you're not my audience, I'm not looking to speak to you. But most, most of us, I'd say all of us, make our purchases, decisions subconsciously. We don't even realise that we've come to that decision because of all of these things that our brain has put together. So our limbic brain is very powerful. That's where our emotions sit. And so when you see someone who's won an award, they've got some articles published on some credible news sites. You know, they're blogging frequently. They're doing videos. They're doing webinars. They've written a book. You know, they're um, being featured on podcasts. They're all the ingredients that go into someone's brain and starts building this relationship with the person that they may potentially do business with. So you're building, you're creating this perception of who you are and how you fit in the marketplace. And, you know, we call them dropping breadcrumbs. So the more breadcrumbs you can drop out there and build those relationships with people, even before you know you have a relationship with them and they come to you and they go, I'm looking for a naturopath or I'm looking for a mechanic or I'm looking for whatever. Um, I really like what you do. And you're like, awesome. So why do you like what you do? You know, and they may not be able to articulate that, but their brain is going, well, because you've won awards, you put yourself out there, you know, you're not afraid to, you know, champion your own drum, you're knowledgeable, you're skillful, you know, you're all of those things that build trust and build likability and connection. Um, so, yeah, that's why awards are important because it's not, it's, look, this isn't even about me. This is about the people I work with and this is about the people that I want to work with because it says that I know what I'm doing. It says that I can be trusted with what I'm doing and it says that I have the knowledge and skills to do what I do. Um, so you come to me and you go, hey, Ned, I want you to write me an award and some people, and I'll go to people, awesome, how did you find me? And it's like, oh, I've been following you for a long time. And I'm like, I've never spoken to them. Like mm. I've had people come to me two, three years down the track and they go, I've been following you for a while and I really like what you do. Um, you know, or, or some, some people go, I've been stalking you. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I'll make sure I keep the windows closed next time. What award would you like to win? You've won the Stevie. The grand stevie 
what would you like to win? Is there something or um, some recognition you'd like? I'd love to win a Telstra Best in Business Award. I think that's the highest business accolade in Australia. Um, and I'd love, I've been a finalist four times in the Australian Small Business Champion Awards. I would love to win one of those in the marketing category. Um, so, you know, I, I keep entering and I keep learning. Um, I really love an award that gives you feedback. Um, a lot of them don't, the Telstra does to a point, um, but most other awards, Stevie's do, which is fantastic. Um, but, you know, most of the time you don't even know why you've not won. You, you just kind of have to work it out for yourself. So I always just, I just keep trying. Like there's no skin off my nose to, you know, not win or, or to be a finalist and not win because every time I do one, I learn a little bit more about how I can make it better for myself and, and for my clients, which is why I like the Stevies because the judges give feedback and you can go and download that after and you go, okay, so why didn't this one get what we were expecting and you know you read the judges comments some of them you go are you on crack like <laughs> you really wrote that um, but others you'll go okay we really needed to um hone in on this point rather than on that point so yeah good on so i could use this for weight it's a big award when you're actually trying to promote a client what are the things that you're looking for? What are you trying to do? Is there a formula? Uh, there is a formula. So we've we've really nutted down our formula and it's a 12-month strategy that we create. And we look at all of those aspects that I talked about before, what awards align with their business and their audience. Um, you know, what media outlets are their, their audience on? What podcasts do they listen to? You know, what type of content do they want on their social media page? And then when we create a 12-month plan that we roll out methodically. And it takes time. I think people have forgotten that anything worth having doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, it can take six, to two, six months to two years to build a brand that gets noticed. Um, so what we're, we're looking for is we really like working with people who understand their target audience because it makes our job a lot easier. However, now that Lauren and I have teamed up, she does that side of the work and helps people really find their their true north and you know find their you know their their reason and their audience and their message so that I can take that and then go, okay, so I know this is who your audience is. I know this is what you want to achieve. And I know this is your skills and expertise. Here's all the ways that we can push that out there. And we, we call it being Googleicious. Uh, how can we put enough content online? So if you go and search for an indention, there is so much stuff out there that, you know, if you wanted to go past page five, you're still seeing my name or whoever the client's name because we have been very methodical in making sure that we're creating enough you know, high quality, decent content that builds their authority and builds their credibility. So, you know, that subconscious goes, this person is pretty good. You know, I really need to work with this person. 
So it's um, it's a game of patience and a game of persistence and a game of consistence. So you, you have to do, you can't just do it for a month and go, oh, this isn't working. And, I, and there's a lot of people I've worked with who've done that. Six weeks, oh, I'm giving you all this money and, and nothing's happened. And it's like, you know what, a lot's happened. It's just intangible. And, you know, you, it's, you don't build a relationship with someone overnight. You might go, hey, I really like Mark. He's a good bloke. He asks great questions. You know, he's really insightful and intelligent. I'd love to talk to him some more. But I might need to have a few more conversations with you before I go, you know what, Mark's now my friend. Or Mark's someone that I want to give money to because I trust him and I like him. So people are expecting that when they're building their profile, that just because they've been in news.com.au with a big story, that their door's going to be banged down. It may be for 24 hours, but the news cycle so quick that they're forgotten in a day or two days or a week. So you have to go and find some other way to get in front of the people that you want to buy from you so you can continue to build that trust and that likability. And that's where people go, oh, it's too hard. You know, I can't do it. It's too much work. And it's like, well, you either want to have a business or you want to have a hobby. You know, if you want to have a business, this is part of being in business. You have to make marketing your expertise or pay someone to do it for you because none of us like i'm not in my business to do article writing i'm in the business of marketing i'm marketing what i do every day so that people will come to me because i'm good at that thing um, you know a mechanic's not a mechanic a mechanic first and foremost has to be a marketer how do you get people in the door You've got to be out there constantly talking about it. And that's uncomfortable. And I get it. I've been there. I've not always been as in the spotlight as I am now. I had to work up to that and get comfortable with that. Um, and starting my own business certainly helped because I realised very quickly that nobody was going to pay to work with me if nobody knew who I was. And the only way people would know who I am and what I do was if I put myself out there. It's like that imposter and, syndrome, though, that you talk about, that are you really good enough? Oh, I remember my first award that I put I think it's behind me. It's a, a bronze Stevie Award that I won in my second year in business as a startup. And I can remember sitting there and writing my submission thinking... I've got no hope. Like, who do I think I am? Like, I really, I'm, I didn't have an illustrious journalism career. Like, and there are a lot of people around at the time I started who were doing D DIY PR. And they were so much better than me. They had better credentials. They were far more successful. You know, all of those things that I told myself. But I, I did it anyway, and I remember submitting it thinking, oh, well, that was, you know, that was a big waste of time and money. I'm not going to get anything out of it because, you know, like I'm going up against international women in business, like women who are far better than me. And then when I was told I'd won a bronze, I was like, what, really? 
do you know who I am? Like, do you, like, oh, no, I'm not that good. Um, but yeah, obviously the judges thought I was and I am. So, but that was hard fought that moment of overcoming that voice in my head and realising that, you know, another great saying, if it is to be, it's up to me, is the only person who could market my business at the time because I didn't have the money to pay someone else was me. I had to do that. I had to speak up in groups and I had to, you know, write posts on my Facebook page and, and articles and blog and do all of those things, even though I was busy, although I wasn't as busy then as I am now. Googleicious, it's a great word. How did you come up with that one? Um, <laughs> I was I was reading about Beyonce at the time. And, you know, I was doing, my body is boobalicious, boodalicious. And I went, that's, and then I exchanged, I don't know how I did it, but somehow it went from boodalicious to googleicious because I thought, what does everybody want? They want to, you know, why do we pay thousands and thousands of dollars to SEO companies to rank on Google? Because we want people to find us. So there's Google's answering me again. So how how do you how do you do that? And what's the whole point? And I just thought Googleicious. You know, if you want to be Googleicious, you've got to be found, and you've got to do that organically. It's one of those things I'm not quite sure how to explain, Mark. But sometimes things come into my head, and it's like I don't even know where they came from. And it's like it was that was one of the things that I was thinking about Beyonce and just did some wordplay subconsciously and went, that's gold. <laughs> I wonder if I can trademark that. I doubt I can trademark it because Google had probably come down on me like, no, you can't use our word. Because it seems to be working because I've read that you've got $4 million of free publicity in mainstream media for your clients. Yeah, it'd probably be more than that now. Um, you know, one of the ways that you mark the value of publicity is by the advertising value. Some people think that that's a good way. Others would argue that it's not. But, you know, my basic philosophy is, is that, you know, if I get you page three in the Korea Mail and if you had to pay for that spot to advertise your business, then it might cost you... $50,000 for that spot. So you've then got $50,000 worth of free advertising. The beauty of publicity is, is that when a journalist writes about you, they're not writing about it from a marketing perspective. They're writing about it from a storytelling perspective so that they're able to put a little bit more heart and a little bit more personality into the story, which really helps with that connection with your audience. So yeah, it, it, it works, but it's something that I've had to finesse over the years. You know, I've worked with a lot of people and I've, I've worked with a lot of people who've walked away and probably think that I've ripped them off because they've not got the results that they expected. So coming up with this strategy that we have now is very methodical, very laser thought focused um, and very, you know, we, we're constantly telling our clients that, you know, that, that we're on the right track, that we're doing well, but we have that mix. Like, it's really hard now 
to get publicity from the media because there's so much competition. So what we've found is that by, you know, pivoting our strategy a little bit to also factor in third-party sites like Koshi's Business Builders, Inside Small Business, um, you know, Thrive Global, Medium, um, you know, those type of publications where you can write for them um, is also helpful in becoming Googleicious because they've got high domain authority and, you know, that's Google looking at that, that particular Koshi's and going, yeah, definitely a lot more credible than you are. So we're going to give your site a little bit more love because you're connected to that person. Um, that we, We're getting some really good wins because we very specifically create content for specific sites. So instead of just going, okay, we're going to write a media release and we're going to send it out to our list and cross our fingers and hope someone picks it up, Instead, we go, you know, okay, we're going to create a series of articles for Koshi and they're going to be around these five different areas of the things that you do so that we can really build your credibility through this content, through your connection with this high domain site, with Koshi's credibility and because people are easily impressed. You know, you, you go... I've just written an article for Koshi and people are like, oh, my God, that's amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> and it's like, well, no, it's not really. It's about coming up with the right content, building a relationship with the editor of the publication and making sure that you give that editor what they want, which will make their audience happy. There's no magic to it. It's like there's really nothing secret. You know, this kind of irks me when I see people going inside secrets to getting publicity or, you know, <laughs> the, you know, insider's tips. And it's like, there's, it's just like any other relationship. Understand what that person wants um, and then give it to them and then rinse and repeat. <laughs> you know, it does, doesn't always work, but mostly if you do that consistently enough, then you're always going to have something that you can share and leverage and brag about to your audience. We've got so many different types of media these days. We've got television, radio, and newspapers are now going more digitized. Plus, there's the web. Where do you prefer to get your leverage from? Which sort of media? Uh, look, I would love more TV, but it's really hard to get on TV, um, especially in Australia. I mean, we've only got, let's face it, we've only got four channels um, and you know, maybe four or five programs that we could leverage off. And, you know, let's take the project. You know, they get thousands and thousands of pictures every week. You know, you've really got to stand out um, to get their attention. Um, so uh, my favourite is online publications, you know, like the Koshies and the Inside Small Business. I work predominantly with service-based businesses, so that's ideal for them. Um, a podcasts are another great way because, you know, it gives you something to leverage. People can sit and listen to it in the car or while they're doing something else. Um, and awards. Look, I, I just, I cannot go past awards because not only can you get, you know, a pretty trophy, but you also get this enormous amount of content out of the process that helps you improve your business maybe your systems and your processes or, 
you know, the way that you're promoting yourself, you know, always identifies a gap. But who doesn't love a winner? Who doesn't love someone who backs themselves and, and says, you know what, I may not win, but I'm going to have a go. You know, we, we live in this country where we support the underdog. And, you know, I often see people that I've worked with saying, hey, I've been nominated for this. And then hundreds of comments from their followers who go, yay, you know, well-deserved, that's awesome. And, you know, I'm sure that there's a percentage of them who are going, I wish I had the, the guts to do that. Like, I, I'd really like to be able to do that myself. So, you know, it's all of those platforms are a way of not only getting your message out there, but inspiring other people to, you know, come up to where you are or to at least take the next step. So, yeah, as a writer, I cannot go past platforms where I can actually put, you know, fingers to a keyboard and, and pump out some great content that way. Well, you're not only inspiring others, you are an inspiration. To find out about the Audacious Agency, obviously you can Google you guys and you will be Googleicious and also your book. How can people find out about your book? Well, I've just put together a very ad hoc website and it's AnnetteDention.com and you can go there and you can read a little bit about me and do a plug here. There's my book. Those, <laughs> those pictures are all they're all me at different stages of my life with many different hairdos why do we do that to ourselves women it's crazy so if you go to annettedention.com scroll down there's my book you'll see the cover and um, there's a link where you can go and buy a copy and I'll send that to you um, I'm having a soft launch of the book in the next um, five or six weeks where it'll go up on Amazon and Goodreads and Ingram Spark and, and all of those places where you can go and buy good books um, and get the um, e-version delivered to your device. Um, and then I think over Christmas I'm going to, my project will be to turn it into an audio book um, and actually read it so that'll be an interesting process because i think i might read it in the voice of the person i was at the time so i haven't haven't read out loud for a long time since the kids were little so i'm going to turn it into an audio book so people can listen to it on the train something to look forward to annette densham thanks for joining us over the bonnet thanks mark what a great bonnet it is